Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So, Jackie, you know that more and more people have been telling us that we sound exactly the same (laughs) on the podcast. I am so incredulous, and several people close to us are incredulous about it, too, which gives me confidence. But I do have to admit that the other day I was editing an interview, Mm -hmm. and something was said, something very brief, and I went, wait, was that me or her? And I went, (laughs) oh, no. So if you're not sure, this is Galit. And this is Jackie. One of our uh, recent guests who we're interviewing in a to-be-released interview listens very frequently, and she said, I have to like listen for context clues to figure (laughs) out who it is. So yeah, maybe I'll try to reference bassoon in like every sentence. That'll work. And then they have to remember that Jackie plays the bassoon and Galit plays the (laughs) It's a losing battle. So we're talking today about repertoire envy. I have to say this is a fabulous idea and it was your idea, Jackie. I love, this is so great. And we put it on the social media and we got a lot of responses. Do you want to do the listener responses first or do you want to do our responses? Let's start with the listener responses because I feel like I could talk about mine all day and I want to make sure we get to what they said. So we have a ton of string envy, which I don't think is terribly shocking. String players have some of the best repertoire on earth. So Lee Munoz from Mizzou, shout out Lee, um, says, I get repertoire envy every time I hear Ravel string music. The run that really gets me is his second violin sonata. Mm-hmm. And then Christy Selkeen says Barbara Adagio for strings. That's a really good one. 
friend of the podcast, Scott Smith, is mad that oboes were left out of the Stravinsky octet. They replaced you with the trombone. <laughs> this is this would be a really good like this would be a really good syllabus for double readers. Be like, look at listen to all this music that you're missing out on. <laughs> yeah. Mark just says his composers who he wish had written a sonata or concerto for the bassoon, Stravinsky, Ravel, Brahms, Ebert, or Nielsen. I don't know about a Stravinsky bassoon concerto. That might be like so hard that there would be a Jackie-shaped hole in the side of the building. <laughs> like you just think about some of those excerpts and like what would he do? If also Ravel. Ooh, actually maybe Ravel more than Stravinsky. <laughs> You know, I would probably, I would probably commit murder for something by Brahms, though. That's true. Can we submit a posthumous request? (laughs) Get out the Ouija board. (laughs) (laughs) It is almost Halloween. Brahms, get on it. Uh, Bob says uh, Sibelius, he would add to the list and then goes on to just generally say everything. It's not fair. To which I have to admit (laughs) I responded, it's not fair. None of this is fair. Bob is a really funny person. Hey, Bob. (laughs) Um, Continuing on, uh, John says, if only Poulenc had finished his sonata and Prokofiev had written a concerto for bassoon. That's another scary one. Is this a Halloween episode? (laughs) (laughs) The scary what ifs. Everyone else's dreams is like our nightmares. (laughs) Shout out Andrew Brady, our first original guest. Our brave warrior. Uh, I'm so mad there's nothing in the wind chamber repertoire like the Mendelssohn Octet. That piece makes me wish I was a string player. Yes. Most of the Beethoven violin sonatas also make me wish I was a string player. Um, The Berg Violin Concerto. This is Jackie, not Andrew. I'm not putting words into Andrew's (laughs) mouth. (laughs) Alana voted for Fantasia, excuse me, Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis. And Jordan says the Poulenc Oboe Sonata is one of his favorites, and he's always wanted to transcribe it and perform it. Let me tell you, Jordan, that piece is so beautiful, but it is a trap. It is so hard. (laughs) The Poulenc Oboe Sonata is one of my favorite pieces for any instrument, and I have to admit, I am jealous. Yeah. I mean, I'm very proud we have it in our repertoire, but it also scares me to pieces. Going over to Instagram, Andrea, Crazy Town... Has bassoon repertoire envy? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, she, wants do. to be, <laughs> she wants to be able to play the Tonsman Sonatit, which is actually a pretty cool piece. But if I'm going to be jealous of one instrument in the Western canon, I don't know. Bassoon's not it. See, as an oboist, I'll tell you that controversial opinion, the bassoon is better. <laughs> really? You think so? You have a wider range by a lot. You get to play a lot of like baseline stuff. You're the heart of the wind section. Well, I agree with all of that, but I don't think the repertoire always reflects it, at least in terms of like whose pieces I'm jealous of. I'm not like, well, you know, I can never play quartet for the end of time, but I've got that Hummel concerto. (laughs) Personally. I guess you have a point. Well, maybe we should switch over to our personal repertoire envy. Why don't you go first? Mm, okay. So my wife is an, a horn player, and we have this great recording 
of Brahms one um, on a record. We have, she bought me a record player for my birthday a couple of years ago. So we listened to this Brahms one on my record player. And I'll tell you that slow build and then to the fourth movement, that huge horn feature at the end, and then you just start crying. That really makes me wish I played the horn. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. And I have to say, I have horn envy a lot in the orchestral oh, repertoire. Yeah. Anything Mahler, you're just like, I'm never going to get to play that. And I have to admit, I'm such a sucker for any horns up. Oh my God. The last portion of Mahler 1. Anytime their bells are in the air, I'm oh. like standing up in the middle of the crowd, pumping my fist, screaming, crying. <laughs> and also that beautiful solo in the second movement of Tchaikovsky's fifth. That's one of my favorite melodies and solos of all time. That's just gorgeous. Yeah, I would say that probably the instrument I have the most envy of all the time is the horn. But I do have repertoire envy also for your the bassoon Sanson sonata. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. I mean, ours is really beautiful too. The oboe one is really, really beautiful, but the bassoon one is so special. Well, the bassoon has some special moments, but here's the thing. And I hope that the bassoonists won't like throw tomatoes at me, but it's ending. I call it the hoedown. And I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> this beautiful sonata, and then he ends it. And it's like, sir, I object. Why are you ending it like this? Why do you hate us? What am I supposed to do with this? So, what, what is your repertoire envy? I have a lot. I feel like I could be here forever. Since we ended with your bassoon envy, I guess we can start with my oboe envy, which would be the Von Williams Concerto, which I think oh, yeah. is so beautiful, mm -hmm. and also the Strauss Concerto. Oh, nothing can really hold a candle to it. Right. And I feel like, and I don't want to project, um, but a lot of times when you play the, the instrument whose repertoire it is, and it's so difficult, it's hard for you to get outside of that and really appreciate what the listener experience is. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, whenever Strauss comes up among oboists, it's just like, oh, endurance and it's so hard and it's so much pressure and da 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 da. But just personally, I love putting on a recording of the Strauss Oboe Concerto and just enjoying the musical moment. It's so beautifully written. It really is. And just kind of playing off your horn envy, I think a lot of what I am envious is stuff that I'll never be able to do. Not necessarily things I won't be able to play because there's a lot of transcription possibilities. We could, you know, it's a whole nother dish of which ideas are good ideas. <laughs> I get a lot of envy when I think about the fact of like, I watch someone sing a really beautiful aria. Oh, that is a whole nother thing. Yes. Even if I could sing that lead or, or sorry, transcribe that lead or uh, transcribe that aria, it wouldn't be the same as being able to sing it over an orchestra. Like that moment of performance is something I'm extremely envious of. And likewise, great piano solos, like pictures at an exhibition. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm glad I played the bassoon, but there are times that I watch stuff like that that the bassoon can't remotely replicate. And it's like, that's pretty darn cool. Yeah, I agree. 
I started performing more with my voice colleague here at USM, Jonathan Earrington, mm -hmm. and I have so much voice envy. I actually, um, I've asked him to start giving me voice lessons, <laughs> which is really embarrassing and also really fun. No, there's so much to be learned. I had my voice colleague, Tim Schmidt, come in and teach my studio class last week. Oh, cool. Yes. And he talked to us all about the vocal approach to breathing, the vocal approach to vibrato. And it, I was amazed at how similar it was, but he had such different tactics to explain the process that I feel like I have this whole new range of pedagogical tools. Uh, before we go, can I just tell you a little bit about being at the Midwest Double Read Society Conference? Ooh, please do, yes. I actually had to leave pretty early on because I had something I had to get back to town for work, but I did get to meet a lot of Double Read Dish listeners. So I want to shout out to Mariah, who was rocking her squad bag. Ooh, hey, Mariah. At Double Read Day. And... I also want to shout out to um, a oboe mom. I didn't ask to use her name, so I'll keep her anonymous. But yeah, a, a mother of a student oboist whose child is getting ready to audition for college and kind of weighing all that decision. And she said, um, we listen to the podcast together and it has kind of helped me understand the process that he's going through. People will say shady stuff like, oh, what is what can you do with a degree in oboe performance? And she's like, a lot, you know, 40 episodes worth of double replays <laughs> who, uh, <laughs> are making it work. So shout out to uh, Oboe Mom. You know who you are. And it was fun oh, to talk to you. That is amazing. If you're a bassoonist who needs great quality reads, look no farther than Go Bassoon. Handcrafted by Lee Miller Munoz, these reads are both high quality and affordable. She also makes contrabassoon reads. You can find Go Bassoon at www.gobassoon.com. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Eric Stomberg, professor of bassoon at the University of Kansas, instructor of bassoon at the Interlochen Arts Academy, and the president of the International Double Reeds Society. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here with you, too. I love to start by asking how you came to the bassoon in the first place. Well, um, unlike a lot of folks, I actually started on the bassoon um, in sixth grade. And there was a 
a friend of mine uh, and, and I, we decided, decided to um, take on the challenge and then he lasted all of two weeks and <laughs> I, was, uh, I was left as the sole bassoon player in my sixth grade band. Um, but the reason I, I found the bassoon was that we had a, what I would call an instrument petting zoo. Um, I remember set up in the cafeteria of my grade school and we tried different instruments and I was uh, one of a very few people who could even get a sound out of the instrument and um, it was different and unique. And so I thought, yeah, I'll go with that. That, that sounds like a good choice. And here we are. <laughs> could you walk us through your educational and training journey and kind of talk us through how you embarked on your professional career? I grew up in New Mexico, and there was there was a really strong music education pedagogy in in the schools. Uh, I think a lot of that borrowed probably from the state of music education in Texas, which was very close uh, to where I grew up. And so, I think from a young age, I had a lot of really solid training in ideas of rhythm and tone production and things like that. I actually studied with a retired band director who was learning bassoon alongside me. So I had a, a little different path than some. However, I um, was very into marching band and also into tennis. I was on the varsity tennis team and that, that took a lot more time than my, my music did. <laughs> and so um, it wasn't until really late, uh, actually when I was a senior that I decided in high school that I decided to really looking at into pursuing music as a, as a career. And um, part of that was I realized my tennis game wasn't going to do much for me moving forward. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, I wound up at the University of Kansas uh, as an undergraduate. And um, it was after a few years there that I really kind of understood what it was to study music professionally and or seriously, certainly. And so from there, I went to Cincinnati Conservatory um, for my master's and doctorate and uh, a lot of summer festivals and other experiences, of course, over the years, and then started uh, uh, my academic career around 2000 with my first position. Could you talk us in more detail through your journey to becoming a professional musician and, you know, the jobs that you had getting to where you are today? When I think about maybe the the spark that, that ignited all of this, it, it probably goes back to, um, as I said, after a few years of my undergraduate degree, I really un started to understand what it was to study seriously. And I think it was, there were some experiences over the summers that I had after my, after my freshman year, I went to my first IDRS conference, which is a long time ago now. And, um, also attended the Glickman Popkin bassoon camp, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have gone to and experienced. And, and then after the, the next summer, I went to the uh, Sarasota Music Festival. And I think all of those experiences uh, provided me a different understanding of, of what it was to be a professional musician, because I had really just been a regional bassoon player, to be honest, until that point, I hadn't really done anything outside of the area where I lived. Um, so I think that started me on my, my path of um, performance and teaching career. Towards the end of my graduate work, I was freelancing and playing quite a lot in Cincinnati and Dayton and Kentucky, other areas around there. And um, on the orchestra, 
uh, audition trail, like a lot of my colleagues. And, um, and after returning from an audition with Boston Symphony uh, Orchestra that I did not win, I, um, had, I started applying for teaching positions, realizing that I had done that all my life since I was um, in high school myself when I was teaching younger students. And, um, and so I was very fortunate to, to get a few nibbles on the end of the, the line. And, um, and so I, I started my career at Ohio University in 2000. And um, it was a, a wonderful place, a wonderful group of people, and and really kind of helped me to make that transition from being a freelance person trying to finish your degree into professional life. Um, very quickly thereafter, I had an opportunity um, to work at the arts camp at Interlochen. Um, and very soon after that, I somehow became the, the instructor of bassoon there at the what's called the Arts Academy, which is a year-round boarding school in a visiting uh, position. So I very quickly uh, kind of became the, um, a busy guy, and that has kind of continued to this day. I would be really interested in hearing, in terms of your pedagogy, because you teach high schoolers, very advanced high schoolers, but um, younger musicians nonetheless. And you have your um, college studio, which includes undergrads and graduate students. And I would be uh, very curious to know what are the commonalities and then how do you have to make your teaching distinct for each of these respective age groups? That's an awesome question. Um, and thanks for asking it because I, um, I think about this a lot. I um, am certainly, I guess, unique. I don't, <clears throat> I don't usually like that word. It's, I think it's used quite a lot uh, when it shouldn't be. But I, I do consider the opportunity that opportunities I have in my uh, different positions as, as quite unique. And I think each one helps the other. And so um, the things that are common... I think to any of us, our, our strong technical background uh, of rhythm, tone production, vibrato, musical intent, things of that nature that regardless of what level and what works and repertoire somebody is playing, the more that those things are well handled, the more that the students in that particular area are going to distinguish themselves. And I've been really fortunate to to have been able to see that in, in work, in action, um, over the last two decades now, or approaching two decades. I think specific with how the younger students, how working with the younger students affects me, it certainly keeps me grounded and keeps me, you know, working with the types of things that if I were just working with graduate students, I might not, um, might not keep a focus on. I think it, it has helped um, also to, um, in, when my doctoral students are preparing for job interviews and, and um, attaining positions, it, that experience that I have on a regular basis just helps to keep me informed all the time. And then certainly the, the quality, um, or more importantly, the level of playing of the, of the advanced students, um, just thinking of my, about my studio at the university, um, that, that's a very helpful thing for the, the studio dynamic, um, for, for students to hear, um, for the youngest student 
students to hear students at a very high level. And I think with the, the young students at Interlochen, there's a, an understanding that I, I have these other um, backgrounds. Certainly uh, in, at audition time, it's very helpful because I, I'm on both sides of the fence in terms of helping mm-hmm. the high school students to, to find their path forward through the audition process. And, and while I'm also on the other side, evaluating it and kind of seeing what the trends are and how, how things work. So I'm very fortunate um, to have those, those different hats that I can wear. Sometimes it's, it's tricky to figure out which one is on at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> As the president of IDRS, you're in a unique position to see the direction of that organization and the direction of the double read community, um, the, the, trends that we're moving toward and the things that we're prioritizing as we move forward. And I wonder if you could talk to us about um, what you see in the conversations about the future of bassoon playing and the future of oboe playing. Well, I am so uh, thrilled to be uh, uh, in this position and that the the members of the society have the the trust in me to have uh, voted me into this with, with our other um, elected officers on the executive committee. Um, it's certainly, I think for any of us, when we grow up, we're not thinking, oh, that's what I'm gonna be, the president of IDRS or the, um, the president of this organi- organization or that organization. So I, I think um, the, the experiences I've had over the years have um, given me an opportunity to be um, known in different communities, and I think that's um, that's been helpful in, in taking over um, the role. We, you know, have had the the uh, the gas pedal uh, kind of to the floor here for the for the last months with IDRS. Um, for many years, we've been talking about um, our approaching 50th anniversary, which will be in 2021, and that change and um, reflect and reacting to you know current trends is really important and that a lot of organizations like ours um, can easily get stuck in what we're doing um, and so as as you all know um, we have kind of revamped our our not just our website but I would say our brand we've looked at you know what what it is to be a member of IDRS and I think um, as part of that we've been reaching out to our members and to non-members. And so, so that gives me a little better um, background in answering your question. But I, I think there are more, um, you know, there are more people playing our instruments around the world than ever before. And um, to go to different parts of the world and to see the enthusiasm, um, certainly that was present in Granada, um, to see so many young double read players there were there were over 1500 people at the conference which i think was probably one of the largest uh we've ever had and one of the reasons was that the the youth movement as i call it was uh significant and um that was really wonderful to see because i you know i went to recitals and concerts and saw the eyes of these young people and how they just the experiences that they were having kind of took me back to you know, recitals and and concerts that I remember when I was in Sarasota or at the Glickman Popkin thing and just was, my mind was changed. You know, my my mind was blown and kind of my um, uh, understanding of it all was just um, 
really expanded. So I, I'm an eternal optimist, but I also think that um, we have a really awesome opportunity to, to further expand what it is to be in a double read community. Um, and I think we're still figuring some of that out. Um, I know we are. So if anybody listening has any awesome ideas, please be in touch. <laughs> I would be interested in knowing, and we talk, we ask this question a lot, but I think you're maybe uniquely suited to answer it. How do you make the most of your practice time considering how many various things you have going on at any one time. I would imagine you have to plan that really carefully and prioritize really carefully. Uh, yes, that is, that is true. Um, I, I think the, the balance of, of work and practice for anybody um, is a serious um, issue. And so I, I, you know, we all have our own way of, of getting through that. I have to really, do this in a strategic way. There are a few things that I have found out in my um, kind of midlife here. And one of them is that I, I do much better before noon in practicing and in, in learning and remembering things. So um, when I was a student, I, I would leave the conservatory in Cincinnati at, uh, you know, 2 a.m. and walk through sometimes a pretty, you know, rough part of the town <laughs> to get back to my apartment. But um, that is definitely not the case anymore with, with um, how I practice. So I really need to do things before noon. So I, I have set out in my schedule um, that particular parameter. Also, I, I try to do that at, in my studio. Um, there's too many distractions for me in my home. And okay. so um, I, I try to do that in the studio and um, to, you know, to, to have a little bit of a sanctuary for doing it. Um, I was talking with my, one of my students the other day days about what amount of time, you know, professionals practice versus, you know, when we were in school, um, mm -hmm. as I was having the, the discussion of, you know, with a performance major that really, you know, those who are inherently successful have a certain age range that they're practicing a very solid, you know, four to six hours a day or something, you know, if they're, they're really going to, um, knock it out of the park. And, and that's shocking to some young people. It was shocking to me when I heard it. And I certainly don't do that now. Um, but I think there's a certain amount of maintenance that we all have to do as professionals. And um, that depends on your job. If you're, if you're playing principal bassoon in a, in a orchestra, then of course your, your time and your read making, the amount of reads, the, the, you know, the amount of time you practiced on specific things might be different. But for me in my uh, position, it's, it's too easy to kind of go in and out of uh, being in, in good shape. So I tried at my best to, to, you know, adhere to kind of a regular um, thing, even if it's only, you know, 60 minutes to, you know, 70 minutes on some mornings to just keep me focused on what I need to be doing. We often ask about work-life balance and there's kind of a question as to whether or not that actually exists. Do you have any, any activities that you like to engage in outside of the bassoon and academia and teaching um, that ground you and help you in your career? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, I think your question is, 
your questioning of work-life balance is, is a, an interesting one. Um, I, I think for a lot of us, it's more like work-life equation and it doesn't always equal, you know, it, it equals more than the sum of its parts or mm -hmm. I don't know, the sum of the parts mm -hmm. are more than, than people can handle sometimes, um, which is unfortunate. I think that's, you know, we're all trying to find the, the balance so that we can give as much to our students, you know, the appropriate amount to the ones we're teaching, to those we're interacting with professionally and of course to our families. Um, but having said all of that, I, um, during the busiest time of my life, I, I certainly gave up my tennis playing, which I did way back when, as I had said. Um, and so I've reconnected with the game, which has been really helpful for me um, in the past three years. Uh, so I having just I just played yesterday actually, and um, it it's something that I think fulfills a a requirement that I to talk to my students about, which is they really need to have something to do that allows them to not think about the thing that they do. Their you know natural their things. So you've got to get away from it somehow, and I I have found it very helpful because um, when I'm out, you know training or, or playing tennis, it's pretty hard to think about the soft cane that I was annoyed about uh, <laughs> or the, you know, a student who hadn't practiced up to their potential or, a, you know, administrative situation that's frustrating. Um, and I think probably like a lot of people listening, there, there are things that, that, um, that really help press a reset button or just keep us real and, um, and provide some type of balance. I don't know, you know, the, the exact balance, but certainly it helps for me. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of young people eager to study with you. So I kind of have a two-parter. What factors do you consider when deciding who you accept to work with in your studio? And piggybacking on that, are there common things that you notice yourself saying or remarking upon across student playing? Are there things you find yourself saying over and over again? You know, I've tried to boil this down over the years to what it is um, that we are looking for in a student or that I'm looking for in a, a student in my studio. And over many, many years now, prob probably, uh, you know, well over a decade, I've, I've come down to the, the three things or the three buckets. There has to be a certain level of talent. Um, there certainly has to be work ethic. And the last one is patience. There has to be patience to allow the work to ultimately be successful. And that's a hard one to, uh, to know. That's actually what I have found in many, many student situations is the problematic one. The patience, being being kind to yourself, and and allowing for the necessary, uh, you know, time to elapse to fix problems or to work through things. So I think, regardless of the level, I mean, obviously, there are very specific things that um, I look for in a doctoral student, knowing that this is it for them. You know, once they get a degree, they need to be employable, and they need to um, to really be um, able to enter the workforce and have the tools and the traits that will allow them to kind of rise to the top of a pool of an applicant pool. Uh, that's certainly different than the types of things for an undergraduate uh, major that I'm 
that I'm looking for. My ultimate goal for my students, there's like goals, I guess there's two of them. One of them is um, kind of my goal. I want to make sure that I'll be able to teach them to teach themselves. So obviously, as you all know, in, in the practice room, one has to become your own teacher. And that takes a while to learn, um, to get past the, the, the harsh criticism you give or the dangerous criticism or damaging criticism, um, to, to just being able to work in a, in a mode of improving on a regular basis. Um, so there's that. And then, but really the, the ultimate goal is to come out of study as a well-trained musician, not just a well-trained bassoonist. And so I would, to answer the question, I guess I would look at that in the, in the uh, reverse to say when I hear auditions, um, I hear a lot of good bassoon playing, but I don't always hear that students have paid attention to what it is to, to be a good musician who just happens to play the bassoon. Mm-hmm. And those are things that are really critical to me. Um, I think sometimes it takes students just being willing to take a chance and to say, I think it should be this way. I think, you know, I'm going to play this phrase this way. Um, it's auditions in general make people so careful. And that's unfortunate. That's a, just a part of it that we're so nervous to make a mistake or to not make a mistake. I mean, that um, we don't actually take chances. And sometimes we, we limit the, what we have to show as musicians. That's a great segue to my next question, which is what kind of advice do you give to musicians who struggle with feeling fearful being on stage or any kind of performance anxiety? That, that's um, certainly an issue at, at any level of, of study, but I would say two things about it. One, there, we do have to be honest about um, what one reason a student could have performance anxiety would be, and that would be that they're not prepared. So that's always an option. <laughs> and, <laughs> and one to make sure that you cross off the list before you go down a whole list of other things that somebody might do to, to okay. free their mind and to be able to be in the moment. Um, unfortunately, I do find that that is the larger percentage of, uh, or I would say the larger percentage of students who suffer from what they call performance anxiety often boils down to just not being prepared. And so if you've only been able to successfully navigate a passage one out of 10 times, that is going to create anxiety. And if you're performing, then you could call it performance anxiety. <laughs> so I, I do think we have to be True honest words. About <laughs> so I, you know, I am the bearer of bad news sometimes that it's actually not performance anxiety. It's just, you haven't practiced enough. Um, <laughs> having said that, I, there, um, this was something that my dear uh, mentor, Bill Winstead, um, talked about a lot. And he had a, actually on the back of his door, and, and I was studying with him in two different studios because it, when I first went to Cincinnati, there was an old building that was subsequently knocked down and then a new whole school uh, you know, arose out of that. So he had two different studios that I, I studied with him there. But um, he had a little sign that said conceptualize on the, the back of his door. And then at some point, some of the students got together and made a super fancy one with calligraphy, you know, so 
that that word would stand out a little bit more. But to me, that's really where performance anxiety issues can start to be addressed through conceptualizing the place that you're going to play, the way in which you're going to sound. Um, in a way, it's kind of envisioning that you are going to be successful, given that you've done all the requisite work to be prepared. Um, and I think that's a broader concept than, than the, the tactical or tangible things, which are play for a number of your colleagues that make you somewhat nervous and the, the things that all of us as, as teachers talk to our students about. But I think it goes back to conceptualizing the, the experience that you're about to be in. And um, it's not that much different than sports, I wouldn't say. I mean, there's a lot of individual play in different sports, a quarterback in football or a point guard in basketball that, ha that needs to, you know, kind of vision or can have a, a conceptual understanding of what they're doing and, and how that is going to lead them to success. Mm -hmm. I'd love to shift now from your pedagogy to you as a performer and bassoonist and perhaps start with, um, whether it be in recital setting or concerto setting, what are some go-to pieces that you really love to play? And are there any pieces that are not as commonly played that you think need a little more attention? Sure. Well, I was um, working with a prospective student just, just the other day, and she brought in my favorite piece, which was the Hurlstone Sonata in F major. And the reason it's my favorite piece is when I was a kid, I bought a cassette tape, which some of your listeners <laughs> might not know what that is. But uh, <laughs> Anyway, it's a way to play music back through an old timer <laughs> device, you know, and um, anyway, it was very a retro. recording, <laughs> very retro. <laughs> it was a um, cassette of bassoon music, English bassoon music that was performed by Lawrence Perkins. Uh, maybe some of you know that, that recording and the Hurlstone Sonata was on the, the list, the Elgar romance and other things uh, as well. But I just kind of fell for this piece. There was something about it that um, the tone and the quality of sound of the bassoon and that particular piece just really got my attention. I, th I think later on, I realized that anytime the bassoon is allowed to play an F major, it sounds like a million bucks. And, and so this was certainly one of those pieces. But um, I think in a way, it's uh, that work um, is is one that's not actually played as often as it probably should be. Um, the piano part, as many know, is very demanding. And, um, and so it could be problematic on that level. And, uh, but I, I think that's a wonderful piece that one of my favorites, I, by, um, I was accused of one of my dear colleagues uh, when I was going to teach at, at uh, his or do a master class at, at this person's school. And, and he said that piece again, you know, like, <laughs> don't you know anything else? <laughs> um, as for pieces that, that are hidden gems, um, I've never been one to have a, um, you know, a cookie cutter approach and that every sophomore plays this piece and every junior plays that piece. I, I, that would freak me out majorly to, to lead that kind of, uh, existence. So, um, I think I, I am already um, try to explore as many uh, unknown or you know pieces outside the realm uh, of of standard repertoire as possible. And so I I do think that young students should really be approaching 
the the study of music in a way that they need to explore new things. You know, we have so much music being written for our instrument that um, some of it's really successful, some of it might not be, but that that's no different than other works in, you know, from decades or centuries before. Um, I do think it's really critical that students start to think about music uh, selection with an, a more diverse and a more um, kind of in, in inclusive nature of, of what they're saying when they pick music for a recital. Uh, you know, so we have to play the war horses and, and understand some of that, but we, we need not do that solely um, on, or we should, we don't need to only play pieces that everybody knows. And so I think it's quite important to explore new music and, and, there are a number of competitions and possible, or I guess competitions and conferences and new music uh, festivals and things where, where pieces for our instrument are being written. And I think it, it's important for students to know about that and to, to look at some of those works, to listen to them, to add them to the repertoire. So I don't actually have any, you know, specific, hey, I think you should look at this or that. I do always have to plug my uh, doctoral research, uh, the composer of the, my doctoral research, which, which was Victor Bruns, um, who was somebody who never really promoted his own work um, as he grew up in the former East Germany. So it was very difficult to actually get things disseminated. But um, I think for a lot of people, these are, they're not new, but they are works that perhaps provide a different flavor on a recital and certainly a different um, type of music uh, that was written by a bassoonist for bassoonists. So um, I'll, I'll put that plug in there. Can you describe your approach to read making and maybe give us some best practices that you have found? I'm happy to. Um, I often tell my students that at the end of the, the day when they are making what we would consider professional reads, um, that it would probably be hard to answer the question of who taught you how to make bassoon reads with only one name as the answer. And um, I, I think that's true for me also. I grew up in a very much hodgepodge read-making read situation. Um, I, as I said, I studied with a... Uh, a retired band director who was learning bassoon alongside me and he didn't make reads. So I, I remember in junior high going to a uh, band camp in New Mexico, in Western New Mexico and learned how to make bassoon reads from an oboe teacher who was kind of reading a bassoon read making manual. <laughs> so well, I started with some very strange stuff and um, within three or four years, I had a variety of, reads, some that had three wires, some that had four, some that had five. And at one point I thought, well, the rounder, the better. So how about a sixth one? That would be excellent. Um, and, and over the time, as I became a serious bassoon player, um, I guess there are three names that kind of stick out. Certainly when I was studied the, the method of read making by Norman Hertzberg, that has affected me greatly in my read making. Um, my, what I call my grand teacher, Saul Schoenbach, um, and, and some of the, the tools and things that he, he worked with in the, 
when when he was uh, um, kind of a, a, a pedagogue and also, of course, a performer in Philadelphia. And then Arthur Weisberg, who I spent some summers with um, at festivals, um, who would never quite deliver the read-making method with um, uh, eternal optimism, but but rather um, very clear uh, and uh, sometimes the, the harsh truth about it. Um, I, I remember being at a festival and he looked at one of our reads and he said, primitive. <laughs> and, <laughs> and handed it back. And, um, and so I, I think those, for me, I, you know, I can call it the Stomberg Reed method now, as I guess my students do, you know, which sounds kind of funny to me. Um, but it, it's really a, um, a combination of different things. And so with all of that, the most important thing is consistency, as you all know. Um, consistency of blanks, consistency of um, every possible part of read making that you can control has to be consistent. And over time, we learn how to try to select better cane and to get rid of cane that we know is not going to be successful because it's curved or it's bent or it, it's gray instead of golden in color. Um, or we've, we have some system of, of testing its, its density or its hardness. Those are all things that people do, of course. But um, the most important thing for me to, to pass on to the students is you have to be consistent with the entire process of, of blank making and then of scraping. And that might mean that as you're scraping with a knife or with a file, you count in your mind one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve on one side, and then you do that on the other side. And, and nobody knows you're doing that. But those types of things are really paramount to building a consistent approach that will, you know, not, not make us crazy <laughs> with this process. One of our requisite questions is to ask our guests to tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance. And we thought it might be fun to put an IDRS spin on it and have you tell us about a um, memorable performance or experience at a IDRS conference that you've had. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and I, I mentioned this to the executive committee in my first meeting as president, um, where I gave some opening remarks, but the the performance that comes back to me immediately, although I was, I believe, 19 at the time, um, was the Von Hall double concerto performance that um, Milan Turkovich and John Miller played at the conference in Towson, Maryland, uh, when I was a teenager. That was the first one I had gone to, and my, my mind was just um, like exploding. I had just left earlier that afternoon a read making session that Norman Hertzberg ran in which included a test, an exam that he would give students. And I, I just like my head was spinning. <laughs> and, and so from there I go to this concert and I just had never heard the bassoon um, be so beautifully played and, and it was such resonance and projection and fun. I mean, that's a silly, silly piece for those who know it. And <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. And I, it, I think, that performance, um, certainly in reflecting back on where I am now, um, is, is quite symbolic um, to, uh, to me. I was able uh, to actually present John Miller with a, an honorary membership to the IDRS two summers ago in Wisconsin. And um, I told that story and, um, and 
he, I think he was, he, he was moved by it as well, but I got all choked up, you know, just thinking about it and thinking about how our lives inter, intersect and um, cross paths in different ways. Um, I guess my own performances at, at IDRS, um, the, there's probably two of them. Um, we, I, we've played a few times in a group that, that uh, is called the Men Who Don't Bite, which is a bassoon quartet that, um, that includes me and Barrick Stees, George Sakakini, and John Sherwin. And um, that title of the group refers solely to our embouchures and only to our embouchures. That's the whole point. We, we feel like, you know, as, as performers and, and pedagogues of the bassoon, our whole plan is not to bite on the reed, so hence the name. Um, but we've, we've done a number of arrangements um, of, of uh, piano trios, string quartets, piano quintets, and those, those performances have been a lot of fun. Um, there've been a lot of, you know, a lot of excitement in the, uh, the hall when we play. Um, and, and so for those who have played at conferences, sometimes those can be very nerve wracking because, you know, everybody who knows everything about your you're playing and you're, you know, what the difficulties are of your instrument is there in the hall. And so it's certainly a different, different kind of um, environment than just playing uh, a concert somewhere where the audience is not all double reed players. Uh, but I guess that, that's probably what comes back uh, the, to me the most vividly. One of my favorite questions to ask is what advice you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? There are, um, a number of you know aspects of or aspects for aspiring bassoon players that I think will lead them in a in a better path. But the the most important one for me is that they've got to find a way. Students have to find a way to be kind to themselves and and to to be able to work through the process. I mean, I'm you know us professionals do as well. We can be hard on ourselves if if uh, you know whether it's performance or read making or something, you know, that's not going as well as we want to at a certain point. But, but certainly with students, I think there's such an importance, which I have seen and, and been super fortunate to see, but between the ages of 16 and 22, perhaps there's a lot of, that's, that's the ages where I, I find the most enormous uh, progress is made. And so if somebody spends half of those years kind of beating themselves up and, and diminishing their potential, um, it's really, really damaging. And so I, as a teacher, kind of, um, I take that head on. I don't, you know, I often talk about it in multiple lessons uh, for students who I worry are not being kind to themselves and not allowing the room for, um, for progress. The other things I would say, um, listening to all different types of music is super, super important. Um, I would often find myself uh, what I now call overdosing on a certain piece. Um, I remember I, I remember the specific works I would overdose on. One of them was the, um, the G major string quartet of Schubert. I heard it at a festival and fell in love with it and listened to it every day for six months. Mm -hmm. And we all have those works that we, uh, as like, you know, maybe that's not the right word <laughs> to use, but um, if there can be such a thing as a positive overdose, I guess that would be it. Um, but um, that level of kind of digging into a piece and really orally understanding the, 
the structure and and uh, you know how the thing is put together is really important. And so um, I do find sometimes that students are so busy trying to become better bassoon players that they kind of forget about the listening aspect uh, of different types of music, which is what gives you the the palette from which you can pull colors and put things together. Mm-hmm. So I, I think those are the, the two things I would mention. It has been such a joy to have this conversation with you today. We would love to close by having you tell us about some things that are upcoming that you'd love for our listeners to know about that you're looking forward to. Excellent. Um, well, I, we've got... Um, here at the University of Kansas, a double read day coming up. It's in October, so probably by the time people listen to this podcast, it will have happened. But I mention it because my dear mentor, uh, Bill Winstead, is coming to join us. And um, having been a part of his big retirement bash uh, in Cincinnati last December, um, he re- has now retired from Cincinnati Symphony as principal bassoonist after um, many, many years there. Um, but to, to see all of the students that came back for that event um, was incredibly emotional. And so to have him here with us um, and, and to, to play alongside him is very exciting. Um, other things that are coming up um, are, I guess, IDRS events that are, that are important to our listeners. Um, the, the conference next summer is in Tampa, Florida in July. Maybe not the greatest time, but they do have air conditioning there, so <laughs> everybody should come. And just like all of our um, conferences, there are uh, competitions for students in different ages that that are really um, great to take part in. So I hope people would look um, look to that. The the kind of the major project on my uh, um, schedule, and now if I put it on this little podcast, I'll, I will have to hold myself to it. But um, <laughs> for a number of years, I've been working on uh, what I would call the Stomberg Milda project, um, which is a kind of a, a performance and, uh, um, and pedagogical approach to, to the Milda concert studies, something that a lot of bassoon players play and a lot of bassoon players teach. Um, in different ways, but my intent was to um, put together my um, my work that I've done in South America, um, specifically in Colombia, but also other other countries in South America, to have to kind of have some of our incredible passion for these Milda uh, concert studies uh, translated into Spanish. And so um, I'm planning some different volumes of these things to be released on on YouTube or some other source like that so stay tuned for that that sounds awesome Awesome. thank you so much for being on double read dish what a great conversation we're so excited to share it with our listeners thanks it's been awesome joining you all thank you for joining us for that interview don't forget to follow us on social media We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you want to follow us individually on Instagram, we're at Wilson Bassoon and Hello Oboe. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We would really love and appreciate it if you can do that. And you can listen anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Our guest on the next episode of Double Read Dish is Dr. Mary Ashley Barrett, professor of oboe at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.